G'day mate, welcome along to episode 53 of the Exponential Performance Podcast. In this week's episode, we are rounding out the hydration segments that EPC coach Nick Taylor has been on for the last few weeks. We talk about central fatigue, and then in the Heart and Up project, we dig into an epic tale of polar survival and just how far you can push yourself when you dig deep enough. Let's get into it. Welcome to the Exponential Performance Podcast. Join sports scientist and performance coach Maddie Graham to find out how to train smarter and maximize your performance no matter who you are. All right, g'day, mate. Welcome to the Exponential Performance Podcast, episode 53. What's been going on, Nick? Oh, just cracking through another week. Um, countdown is on, I guess, to the, the next event that I've kind of slotted into my calendar last minute with two weeks to go. Uh, apart from that, I am back home in my home office tonight, so if you can be savvy enough to read my calendar behind me, you'll know where I'm going to be next week. Brilliant. Brilliant. We've got a few stalkers out there. Mate, it's been good this week, just, uh, or last week, getting back into the swing of things. Body's not not feeling great, actually. I've been trying to get back into my training after the Great Southern Brevet, and I've just been like, really tired, knees a little niggly, just, it's, I don't know, top end. I'm trying to work on getting my top end uh, fitness back, but it's just not coming back. It's just not coming back. I'm battling through it. So uh, it's been good, but could be better. Could be better. Harden up. Mate, I know. That's what I'm, I've been trying to do. I've got one of my Harden Up stickers. It's stuck onto my handlebars. Nice. And that's all that's getting me through it. So it's just going to be a matter of putting in the hard yards. But they are they're feeling very hard at the moment. But uh got to keep reminding yourself that it's about the enjoyment. So uh, get out there. We harden up and we smile. And we get yep. through it. Good man. And there should be some harden up stickers on their way to a bunch of people as well. Um, I actually had to go and order a bunch more. So some people it's going to be a little bit late because there was a bunch of people sent in their harden up stories. And I I felt bad. I was like, oh, I can't not send everyone stickers. So I went and ordered some more. And uh, we're going to send them out because anyone that's going to harden up and get on with it, then we want to get them some stickers. Good. And I heard that, I heard that you're uh, you're hardening up. You've turned a corner, mate, for hardening up as well. That's the word on the street, anyway. Is it? Yeah. We'll, we'll thank a thank a dear friend of mine around that one <laughs> who, who slipped you a wee message. <laughs> well, it's good to hear, mate. It's good to hear. What are you going to be talking about this week, Mister Taylor? This week. Uh... We're going to sort of finish off the hydration uh, conversation um, and then have a little look at what we might be covering, covering in the next few weeks, uh, moving into more of a talk around some training concepts. Awesome. Well, before we jump into that, well, let's talk about training plans and that if you're looking for a quality structured training plan to take the thinking out of your training, but you don't want the, the price tag that comes with Nick's and I's personal training programs, then check out the wide range of training plans available over at exponentialperformancecoaching.com slash plans. We've got a wide range of training plans designed for specific races as well as general training phases. 
If you can't find a plan that suits your needs and wants over there, flick us a message and we'll do our best to come up with something that can help you towards your goals, whatever they may be. Now, let's get into some hydration with EPC coach Nick Taylor. Cool. Well, if you've listened to the last two episodes, and I know a few of you have because I've had a few comments coming my way, uh, you will have now hopefully understood why hydration and especially sodium is so important from a performance point of view. Um, you probably will have measured your sweat rate once or twice, um, and hopefully you know roughly how much of a, a sodium sort of output you have when sweating. Last week we, we covered around the sodium preloading and, and how preloading with a bunch of sodium in the two days before a race can be really beneficial, especially if that race is sort of a long sort of two hours plus um, or in a hot environment. So if you're unfamiliar with those, jump back onto the last couple of episodes and have a listen. So what I promised last week is a table listing a bunch of uh, sports hydration products from New Zealand um, as to the different levels of sodium and carbohydrate in them. Now, I've delved around the internet, so pretty much all of the, uh, the products listed on the spreadsheet you can purchase on various websites or sports shops, um, depends on where you're based. Most of them, too, will be sold internationally as well. I don't think there's anything on there that you won't be able to get in Australia or America um, or the likes. So have a look at the table. I'll get Maddie to put it up um, on the website. And it's really quite interesting. And what amazed me, and I, I learned a lot putting this table together, was the different serving sizes that different hydration products have. Um, and probably the one that surprised me the most was one that I have personally used quite a bit, uh, SOS Hydration. Uh, now SOS has a serving size of 250 uh, milliliters, so really small, and within that you get 300-ish grams of sodium, uh, 300 milligrams, sorry, of sodium. So when you extrapolate that out to a, a 7-ish, 100 mil bottle size, you get up to 990, almost 1,000. Uh, milligrams of sodium so that for someone like myself who is a, sh a big sweater um, I've been under dosing their product uh, which is potentially why I've had a few issues um, of late um, and so from there you can sort of scroll down and see the different levels there's some that are sitting around the 300 mark uh, some underneath that at 200 um, and then some kind of in the four to 600 milligram mark as well so you can kind of pick yourself um, a sports drink um, if you're a fan of carbohydrates in your sports drink too, you'll have to be, sort of weigh that up with the, the sodium. Uh, some of the higher sodium products have a, a lower level of carbohydrate just around taste and trying to get that absorbed into the body. Um, now, I have used a 700ml bottle size um, to work out some of these average um, amounts per bottle. That's obviously going to change if you have a different size bottle. Um, so what I might do is try and formulate a table where you can input your bottle size um, and then have a play around with some numbers yourself. So we'll get this table up for now and then hopefully over the next few weeks can bring you a, a more interactive table. Uh, maybe you can throw in your sweat rate into there as well and we can sort of piece it together and, and make up a plan um, for yourself using this table. 
Nice. That um, any any tables that Nick's talking about will be available over at exponentialperformancecoaching.com slash 53 for episode 53. And also, if you're watching this on YouTube, you will see the table up on your screen at the moment. Um, so if you want to, if you're listening to this uh, on some other podcast platform and you want to see the table, either check it out on YouTube along with a bunch of other images that will be coming up in the podcast episode or head over to the website and check it out there. Cool. Uh, and so from basically from that table kind of wraps up the, the bigger conversation that we've had around hydration. Uh, but I really want to challenge you to, to go down the pathway of putting together your race hydration plan. Uh, now, that plan needs to look at how long your race is going to take you. Um, and that might be a race that you've never done before, so you, you're going to have to have an estimate there. Um, approximately how hot or cold it will be. Now you're gonna, you know, not be as, you know, a weather predictor. Um, doesn't seem like anyone can predict the weather, but a rough indication whether it's going to be scorching hot or, or freezing cold, just to get an idea. Um, you also want to look at how you are carrying your hydration. Um, do you have it on your back in a hydration pack? Are you reliant on drink bottles? Can you fill up drink bottles or hydration pack along the way? Um, and then how are you carrying extra um, electrolytes with you? So on that table, you'll see some of the products are capsules, some are little individual serve sachets, and some are pouches. So do you have to take a whole pouch with you and fill up a bladder, which is going to be a lot more time consuming and a hassle than taking individual sticks and putting them into a bottle or a capsule? Um, but you need to work out for you what your preference is. Uh, and tends to be, if you're at the, the middle to end sort of, a pack of the race, then an extra couple of minutes at the aid station is not going to be a massive effect on your overall time, but it may save you sort of running into issues which will have a, a huge effect on your time down the track. You also need to look at um, making sure you are going to be able to get enough liquid and, and sodium across that race. So yeah, so again, how much are you carrying? How much can you fill up along the way? So more than happy if you want to send through some, some rough um, emails as some hydration plans be really good to get some working examples how it went for you um, so we can use that down the track anything you want to add to that conversation Maddie? you know I think there's um, I think we, we touched on it you've touched on it previously but there's you know some thought around there that um, you know why do we need a plan just drink to, to your thirst and like you say uh, drinking to your thirst is you know is good and appropriate on a day-to-day -day basis, but when you start pushing yourself uh, in, you know, any endurance event, then your perception of uh, thirst and and how you're feeling and everything starts to change, and also um, your availability of fluids uh, and all those external things that are happening, the the people that you're racing next to, uh, all the hype and everything that's going on around you can distort that, and before you know it you're no longer taking notice of that thirst mechanism uh, and all that sort of can go out the window and you, and you end up in a place that you can't really get back from. So having a plan in place uh, helps negate a lot of those things and just makes you prepared to, to make sure you get through the event in, 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 in the best possible time and in the best possible shape. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and it's... I guess adding to that plan is your nutrition um, as well. So what are you going to be eating? 
Um, and like I said, is your sports drink gonna have some sort of carbohydrate in it? Um, and bearing in mind that, like I said, any additions you make to your sports drink yourself, so if you take a bottle of SOS and you add a gel to that bottle, you're gonna alter the absorption of that product. So it's best to kind of try and leave products as individualized as possible and then consume them at different times so they're sitting in the stomach and being absorbed um, at a, a decent rate. Um, and sort of maybe down the track we can we can look at how race nutrition can be altered and different options. Um, I'm really interested in, in people's concept around using gels um, that they haven't used in training. They go out and then use them in a race and they have stomach issues and they wonder why. Um, and I know Maddie's done a whole sort of test on different gels in terms of flavors and, and textures and consistencies. Um, so it'd be really good to have a conversation um, and I'd love some lots of feedback sort of even over the next month as people are going through races, what are you using? Um, what are your go-tos? And I'm gonna make a shout out now to anybody that's listening to this podcast from Canada that has tried a product called Tap Endurance. Um, if anyone's tried Tap Endurance um, and can let me know what it tastes like, um, it's basically a maple syrup um, gel, essentially. Um, I'd love to get my hands on some because I'm a big maple syrup fan. They do claim it's just maple syrup with a bit of salt. Um, yeah. So And some ginger. Um, and so I'm someone that can, can experience some stomach issues and races from just different types of foods. Um, so I'd love to try the, the ginger maple syrup combination. You just can't order it from their website into New Zealand. So Might have to get some brought in through the black market, mate. Yes, or or a handy Canadian listener that wants to wants to send some out this way. I'm sure there's someone listening out there. Surely, come on, guys, don't let us down. So that's a that's a wrap on hydration. Then it's been it's been a good few weeks. Hopefully, uh, everyone's taken something away. Yeah, and just because it's you know so a wrap on hydration doesn't mean there's no uh, no need to ask questions. If you've got questions, feedback. Uh, let me let us know. I'm still still wanting to hear from people of the different products you've used. Um, the table I've created is by no means a an exhausted list of products that are available. So if you've got certain brands that you'd like to use that not are on there, um, send me the brand name and I will get it added. Um, source the details and uh, we'll get that list as comprehensive as we can. Awesome. Let's jump into this week's listener Q and A. Matty, this is David Jacobs from Houston, Texas. I've noticed several times uh, during uh, long workout sessions that toward uh, the end, uh, my heart rate will decrease. Uh, and it seems to be associated with the, de uh, the need for carbs. Uh, and so when I take more in and I drink more of my uh, carbs uh, at that point, in a few minutes, my heart rate uh, goes back up again. Does that make any sense? Why is that? Thank you. All right, David, mate. Hey, thanks a lot for your question. Interesting one. It's an interesting one. Um, just remember, if you've got a question that you would like us to answer, send us in a voice message over at exponentialperformance.com slash ask as an ASK, ask a question, uh, and send us through a voice message over there. If you're not a fan of the voice message, feel free to send us in a message over 
at the Exponential Performance Facebook page or over on our Instagram pages or just email us over at the website. So you're riding along and you're starting to get tired and your heart rate starts to decrease. Now, without knowing too much about the specific situation, there's potentially a lot of different things at play here. But the main thing is is that you're getting fatigued. All right. You didn't say exactly how long you were riding before you get this decrease in heart rate. But fatigues are quite a complicated uh, beast in that a lot of people and the kind of common conception is is that you get fatigued because your muscles start to run out of energy, so to speak. And this is what we call peripheral fatigue. So we start to get fatigue out in the muscles that are working. And this has been shown in the research not actually to be the full story at least. Sure, we start to get depleted uh, of energy, but it's not actually a complete depletion. Complete depletion, that's a mouthful. But what it actually is is that the muscles, or the stuff out in the periphery, the muscles are starting to send signals back to the brain saying that we're starting to get low on energy. And the brain is what we call a central governor in that it controls how energy is released within the body. And it's always playing the long game. And not even a long game in terms of the long game of the end of the, the training ride or the training or the race event, but also the long game of your long-term survival. So the brain will always control your body to make sure it's got enough resources to continue on living and, and surviving uh, in this game that we call life. So what it does is it regulates your output. So what happens is if your heart rate's going down, it's not necessarily your brain turning down the heart rate. It's your brain turning down the amount of work that your legs can do. As your work rate in your legs decreases, then your heart rate, which is kind of like your rev counter on a car, the revs start to go down, which is your heart rate. So the, bo the, the brain's decreasing the amount of sympathetic output. The sympathetic is like that, the adrenaline and the noradrenaline, all the stress hormones and neurotransmitters that make the body work hard. So they dials that back so that the legs don't have to work as hard to conserve the energy. Now, so and that's why the heart rate's going down. Now what you do is you grab your bottle that's full of, you know, carbohydrate drink or you chuck back a banana or a gel or whatever you whatever you're consuming and the body senses that it's getting fuel. So it says, right, let's dial it back up because we've got some fuel coming on board. The, the energy situation in the legs isn't as dire as we thought it was because this clever character has listened to the Exponential Performance podcast in the past, heard Nick Taylor talking about how important fuel is, and uh, he's getting something in the, down the hatch. So then it's able to, to dial things back up. So there's this constant uh, feedback between the brain and the muscle, sorry, the muscle and the brain, and then the brain controlling how much work is put out. So it's not it's not really a case of you deciding to do more work because the brain's a little bit more clever than that clever than that. It's it's a subconscious control. It's beyond your control. And how do we know this? How do we know that it is actually the brain controlling how much work your body can do? There's some really cool anecdotal evidence, you know. How can you do a really long endurance race? 
and then get towards the end and be completely exhausted and you're absolutely dragging the train, creeping along, but then someone comes up behind you in the finishing chute and all of a sudden you've got a sprint finish. How is that possible? Well, it's possible because the brain has regulated your energy levels throughout the, the endurance event, so it's, you're never going to be completely fatigued. But when that person comes up behind you, there's that survival mechanism, that fight or flight response, and your body just opens the floodgates and say, let's go, we're going to beat this guy to the finish line. So there's that example, completely anecdotal, I know, but uh, most of you will have been able to experience that. As you're getting close to the end, your body knows that it's almost finished, so it allows that energy to be used. There's also some really cool research that shows that you can fatigue a muscle, and they did this usually using maximal voluntary contractions of the quad. So you push as hard as you can with your quad, kind of like on a leg extension machine, as many as you can, and what you can see is the force produced by the quad starts to decrease over successive reps. But then what you can do is you can actually bypass the central nervous system, so the brain, the spinal cord, and the nerves going to that muscle. And you can do that by placing electrodes on the legs. So you've got your own nervous system impulse. So you put electrodes in your, on your legs, and you put an electric impulse in directly into the muscle. And what you'll find is that even though this force decrease through the quads over time has happened, what you can do is when you give the, the muscle directly another nervous impulse from this uh, electric machine, what happens, you'll see the force goes back up to what it is when it's maximally fresh. So it's not actually the muscle that's fatigued, it's actually the central nervous system, whether it be fatigued or it's getting down-regulated by the brain. If the muscle was truly fatigued, what you would see is no matter how much you shocked the hell out of the muscle, it wouldn't increase its force production beyond that of what you were already doing because it's truly fatigued. But if it's fatigued and then you see that force return to normal, we know it's a, a, an issue with the central nervous system versus the muscle solely. And the final one, which sort of ties everything back into your original question, is there's some really interesting research around what they call carbohydrate mouth rinsing. So what they do in these research studies is they put carbohydrate, a carbohydrate drink in the mouth, and you don't actually swallow it. You just swish it around in your mouth and then spit it out. And what they've found is incredibly interesting but as soon as you put that carbohydrate in your mouth and swish it around for 20-odd seconds, your body is actually able to upregulate the amount of work that it is doing, which is really interesting because why would the body upregulate work when you're just swishing carbohydrate around in your mouth? And what they're sort of figuring out is that there's these sensors in your mouth that sense carbohydrate. So your body is sensing that it's about to get some new energy. It's about to get energy put into the system. So it says, all right, we're going to dial things up. We're going to release more adrenaline, more and more adrenaline. We're going to activate more muscles, and we're going to be able to work harder because we know that there's some fuel in the pipeline. But we're not actually giving the body the fuel because we're spitting it out. So with you, when you're starting to get fatigued, your heart rate starts to drop. 
you take your carbohydrate in and then your heart rate starts to climb a couple of minutes later, it's probably a, a combination of all of these things. You're starting to get fatigued, your body's down-regulating the amount of work that you're doing, heart rate starts to drop. Carbohydrate goes in, the mouth senses it, so it says, let's dial things back up. And also, there's actual fuel coming into the system to be used, so everything starts to return towards normal, uh, and you're able to keep that energy output up. So that's kind of, if you want to have a look a little bit more into it, and we can dig into it more uh, in future episodes if it's of interest, but it's called the central fatigue model or the central governor model. There's a lot of research around it over the last few years, so if you want to have a dig into that, um, definitely check it out. Nick, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, not really too much. I mean, that, that answer is fairly comprehensive. Uh, the one thing that I had to probably add to it is be around, I guess, this, the concept of being fat adapted and then the intensity of your training session. Mm. Uh, so obviously the, the more intense that session becomes, um, and that will tie quite nicely into our zone conversation over the next few weeks, but the more intensity you go through, the, the more carbohydrate you require. Um, so yep. uh, I'm not sure where your sessions are sort of structured around, David, but by keeping that intensity down, uh, you can increase the amount of fat that is utilised. And so over time, you'll become better trained. Um, so therefore, potentially, you won't need the, the same carbohydrate pickup at the end. Um, there is still a potential you're going to get to a point um, that you, uh, you know, you're, you're bonking or hitting the wall, um, which is kind of that, you know, running out of fuel, um, as we all do at certain points uh, around endurance sessions. Um, but the more fat adapted you can become, means you can rely more on the fat stores um, or the, the meal that you're having prior to that session. Um, and that can be manipulated from a higher carb to a, a higher fat kind of meal. So there's a, a multiple of nutritional I guess, strategies to, to help manipulate and, and play around with. So mm -hmm. again, yeah, if you want to want to send through some more details around that or some throw some ideas at us, just give us a, a yell and we can help out. Nice, yeah. So there's like the potential mechanism why it's happening. Uh, without knowing too much more about it, potentially a couple of things that you could do. Now we're going to crack into the Harden Up project. So last week I introduced the Harden Up project and I've had a huge amount of response from it, ridiculous amounts, and in fact, more response than I've ever had to anything I've ever put out, any training session, any piece of research, um, any, you know, secret inside sports science tip, harden up is the thing that's got me the most response. It's, it's been ridiculous. I've had text messages, emails, like phone calls, people calling me to talk about it, personal messages, and actual, you know, real-life face-to-face conversations with people about the Harden Up project and how to apply it. And I, th I think the most amazing thing with it is it's almost instantaneous. You can take the, the Harden Up principle that we sort of briefly touched on last week and make instant changes in, in what you're doing. It's just a, a choice in the moment to harden up uh, whatever whatever you're doing. And it's been really cool. 
and it's been incredibly uh, motivating to sort of build build on this. And a lot of people have asked me, what is the Harden Up project? You know, is it a new business? Is it a special program that I can buy? To be honest, I don't really know what the Harden Up project is at the moment. Um, but at the moment, I want to use it to as a way to help people, uh, one, improve their sporting performance because that's kind of what I do, but then also help improve their lives in, in some level. Um, you know, the concept and, you know, the simple phrase harden up has really wide reaching impacts. Um, and I think that's come through in a lot of the harden up stories that I, that I've received from people. Um, and I think the words harden up, at least for me, what I'm finding is that the words harden up for me have a really deep-seated meaning in that when I say them, it's just not two simple words, say them to myself. They're not just two simple words. They've got uh, this whole level of meaning and understanding from what I've, I've linked to them. And what I want to do today is share a book with you that uh, helps me, it has really helped me build that meaning behind my harden up phrase and for me this is uh, a book that I've referred to um, in some really deep dark moments recently on the Great Southern Brevet when it was extremely windy and I was cold and I was out in the middle of nowhere by myself it helped bring perspective upon my current situation um, and made it extremely different in the way I was perceiving it so Without further ado, let's jump into the reading for this week's Harden Up Project. Today I want to dig into a book called This Accursed Land. Now this book here is about the 1908 expedition to Antarctica. By, led by Douglas Mawson. Now Douglas Mawson is almost an unknown explorer when it comes to Antarctica. He was down there, the same, this story is based in the same year that uh, Scott and Armiston were racing for the pole. Now Mawson actually got offered a position on Scott's expedition to the pole but he didn't want it. He wasn't interested in racing to the pole. He was actually interested because he was a geologist exploring other land. And what they did is they went down there with the idea of exploring the land directly south of Australia. He was Australian. And all of the Australian listeners out there might, might actually know more about this guy than, uh, than what I do because I didn't know anything about him. And I consider myself kind of a, a little bit of an Antarctic exploration nerd. I love it. So many awesome stories from there. My wife picked up this book for me. Um, free from the library because they were getting rid of it because it hadn't been checked out in the last three years. Now this guy actually used to be on the $100 note in Australia, no longer there apparently, being kicked off. But let's dig into this book. So they went to Antarctica and their mission was to explore this big area down there. So what, what essentially happened is they, they trekked out, they had some dogs with them out 300 odd miles and then they were going to turn around at about 360 miles and make their way back at 300 miles there was three of them so there was Mawson there was Ninnis and there was Mertz 
At about 300 miles out, Ninus falls down a crevasse and dies, along with all of their strong dogs and most of their supplies on one of their sleds. So they're left with a weak dog team, two of these, uh, two of the people, 300 miles from nowhere, their food, their tent, strong dogs, their friend, down a crevasse, dead. Now they've got to make their way back. So here we go. I'm going to read sections of the book directly as they're written, and then also add in, add in bits around it. This is what they were operating in 100 years ago, remember. This is 100 years ago, 1908. The Antarctic is an alien land. Caught in a frozen grip, desolate and barren, hostile to life. It is a lost continent at the bottom of our world, now smothered under the greatest ice shield known. This solid ice cap is an immensity, three miles thick in places, with a mean overall thickness of a mile and a quarter. It blankets, blankets almost six million square miles of Earth's surface in the southern summer, a region bigger than Europe and the United States combined. In winter, when the sea freezes over, the area inundated with ice can be doubled. Its size, altitude and cold frame a climate unique to Earth, a climate which breeds the worst winds known. The cold makes the Antarctic alien, but the winds make it more deadly. The worst and most dangerous are catabatic winds, flying rivers of airs, cold and heavy, falling down the frozen slopes from the polar plateau and increasing in speed, with gravity to assault the parts of the coast where they find an outlet. They reach gusts of above 200 miles an hour and can blow consistently for days and not drop their force below 80 miles an hour for many hours on end. Such winds lift gravel and hurl rocks and heavy objects out to sea. They blow men from their feet and their breath encases eyes, nostrils and mouth in ice. They are the worst winds in the world and a greater menace than cold. Born in rare high solitudes, they pick up snowflakes, ice crystals and frozen pallets compacted like hail, all of which, blowing in the wind, become abrasive material that can polish rough metal to a brilliant sheen and scour the wood from between the grains when they are left exposed for a winter. So this is the environment that they're dealing with. It is literally the coldest and this little bay that they landed in, different from where Scott and Armiston were making their expedition to the pole, is literally the windiest place on earth. Windiest place on earth. This is what they're dealing with. And one of the things about Antarctic exploration back then is they had to go down in summer, obviously, land. They built a hut because there's nothing down there. They built this shelter to live in. And then they have to what they call winter over. So they stay in this hut all winter long preparing and getting all their gear ready so that when summer rolls around they can head out on the expedition and then they come back and they potentially have to winter over again so one of these expeditions can take up to three years because it's so far removed it's not like today when you can just fly in drop your gear off and do your thing and then fly out in, in one summer so they're down there They've spent a winter, and I'm, I'm missing out large chunks of this book, so if you want to read the whole thing, I highly advise it because it's an incredible story, but I'm glossing over a lot of the details and focusing largely on 
the the parts that really emphasize hardening up and how incredible this this story is so here they are they are uh, almost at the end of their journey or at the furthest point of their journey and they're about to turn around they reorganize their gear ready for the final push before they turn around and come back they've evened out the sledge so the heaviest sledge is at the back with all their important stuff on it the strongest dogs are pulling that the front sledge has got less gear on it all the skinny weak dogs are pulling that with the idea that in a couple of days time they'll shoot those dogs feed them to the strong ones and make a run back towards camp so here we go Xavier Mertz was breaking trail about 30 yards ahead of Mawson and Ninnis could hear his singing voice Mawson was sitting on his sledge writing in his journal Ninnis sat side saddle on his the dogs were pulling well down a gentle slope in front the sound of singing stopped Ninnis looked up to see Mertz holding a ski stick in the air pointing to the right it wasn't unusual it indicated that the skier crossed a crevasse that wound away to the right Mawson saw the signal he looked up briefly half turned his head towards Ninnis and shouted crevasse then he bent again to his notes so they're just cruising along Ninnis knew exactly what to do to cut short his time on the snow bridge he would move to the left go directly across he would redirect the dogs better on the ground rather than from the sledge with this he jumped from the rear of the sledge his toes hit the surface like a heavy weighted dart his body plunged through the disintegrating snow and the sledge was plummeting tumbling with him he heard the frightened wail of the lead dog as the sledge dragged all the dogs into the depths Ninnis opened his mouth to scream his terror the fine snow choked his eyes ears and throat and he did not hear his own smothered death cry down into cold blackness with the doomed dogs Belgrave Ninnis plunged deeper and deeper into the abyss of infinity so remember this was the rear sledge the one that packed with all the good food all their strongest dogs down into the crevasse all dead left aboard his sledge was a single food bag sledging rations for three men for a week pemmican sugar dried milk a pack of butter a tin of coca and two dozen biscuits in his own personal bag was a smaller box of sticks of chocolate and a bag of raisins all reserves of food all the dog food was at the bottom of the icy abyss along with their heavy winter tent and the poles with their ground cover the spade and the pickaxe the mast and the spar for erecting sail in suitable weather their mugs plates and spoon Mertz had also lost his waterproof Burberry pants and helmet the six strongest dogs I'd hoped would pull the load back to Cape Deniston were now dead and this is from one of their diaries imagine this imagine being in this position here we are some 320 miles from the hut and remember this is not 320 miles in an occupied country you know where you can stop in at a shop and, and or stop in someone's house or even put, pick something from the side of the road pick an apple off a tree this is the windiest and coldest the most desolate place on earth we're some 320 miles from the hut and we have been out now for five weeks we have the barest resources to get us back 
to face all of the dangers. So you know what we have to do to stay alive. So what they'd actually done is they dumped, where they dumped all that gear off and did all the organizing was about 14 miles back along the track. So a dump 14 miles back along the track had to be reached even for the most rudimental shelter, a lightweight drill tent used until now to cover Mawson's sledge load was the only protection against blizzard and wind and cold. It would mean slogging back across the ice non-stop for many hours, but the effort would help ease the grief Mawson felt. So they had to get back to this dump to find this little tent. And I'll post a picture of it if you're watching this on YouTube. I'll put a few photos out of the book because the sled, the, the little tent that they're going back for, isn't a tent as you know it. It is literally a little a little teepee, if anything. It's already near starvation and complete exhaustion. Winter quarters are 300 miles away, and we shall not get through unless we eat the dogs. We are terribly handicapped. Just a wee excerpt from his diary. So what they do is they decide they needed to eat some of the dogs. One of the dogs couldn't walk anymore. They put it on the sled, carried it through with them, and this is them eating it in the evening. Mawson cut away the fullest leg muscle and exercised the liver, surprised to find it was not diminished in size due to malnutrition. Keep that in mind because the dog's liver is going to play a little bit of a role coming up. So this is them cooking up the dog for the first time. It's pretty hardcore. Imagine being this hungry that you've got to eat your dogs. He used the lid of the cooker as a fry pan. George, who was the dog, George's two hind leg muscles were fried. They, there was so little fat left in the body that the meat did not more than scorch on either side. They each took a piece and tried to chew it. Mert found it was repungent, and he kept on chewing. Mawson bravely told himself that apart from the strange musty taste, its stringy sinewy toughness, it was quite good. It was a forlorn moment looking into each other's faces with the taste of a faithful animal on their lips. So this next day, they're back out on the trail, and here's, here's a bit of an idea of how thirsty and hungry they are. M imagine this thirst. Because remember, Antarctica, even though there's all that snow, it is actually the driest place on Earth. It's, a, it's officially a desert. So their mouths were parched. Their nasal canals dried out. They longed for liquids, but would not stop. So they're marching at the moment, pulling the sled. To melt the deeply frozen snow would mean lighting the primus, which meant erecting the tent, and that was hours out of their time. And in Mawson's anxious mind, hours were miles, and miles were survival. The further they tramped, the more the thought of food intruded, flooded their minds, and when they rested dominated their dreams in vivid, disturbing colour and reality. They used this anticipation of food as a psychological crutch. They promised themselves a special lunch every seven days, but like a cheat day. Every seven days, they're going to have a wee cheat day. This is what they get on the seventh day. A thin slice of frozen butter, a stick of chocolate, and a boil-up of a tea bag. Once a week. Here's what Mertz wrote in his diary. One night in the corner of their little tent. How beautiful that will be after what we eat now to have butter, chocolate and tea seems like a dream.
So they're going to be pulling the sled for weeks and weeks and weeks to get back 300 miles, 500 odd kilometers. And every seven days, they're going to treat themselves to butter, chocolate, and a boil up of an old tea bag. Unbelievable. Here we go back to another dog and, and, and eating of them. There was little sustenance to be gained from the carcass. By the time they collapsed, the huskies were fined down to furry skeletons. They were buffet of fat and protein, yet with the wickedest preservation of fate, their livers were heavily loaded with excess of subtle but powerful substances, which, while normal to their breed, were biodynamic destroyers of the human metabolism. Okay, this is talking about their livers. So they were surprised that their livers looked so big and plump. This is why. Cutting up the carcass, Mawson and Mertz noted how relieved they were when the livers appeared. They relished the freedom from the incessant chewy, chewy, chewing of the meat. They welcomed the time saving in cooking, a quick scorch either side, and they would swallow chunks, ignoring the fishy, foul flavour and the slimy, clinging texture of the canine liver. They believed it to be more nourishing food. They had not heard the law of Arctic Eskimos that the liver of polar bears or the bearded seals, which a cousin of these seals were fed to the huskies, are dangerous. They had not read the writings on men who reported to have died from eating such livers. Not for another eight years would the excessive substance attacking Mawson and Mertz through the dog's liver be isolated in Britain and named vitamin A. Even then, it took a further 20 years before medical science could adjudicate the havoc with overdosing of this vitamin. When it emerged as a clinical entity, it was given the name of hypervitaminosis A. The symptoms were catalogued firstly, dizziness, stumbling, nausea, then scaling, splintering of the skin, loss of hair, opening of skins around the mouth, nose and eyes, later developing into painful open sores. The drying out of the oral and nasal membranes, then irritability, skeletal and stomach pain from the chaotic swelling caused in the liver and spleen, loss of appetite, dysentery, dramatic loss of weight, and then morbid sensitivity, irrationality, followed by delirium, dementia, and finally convulsions and probable death from brain bleeding. So what they're doing is eating the liver of the dogs, which has got concentrated levels of vitamin A in it from the seals that they've been eating, and now they're getting poisoned by the liver, which they think is the most important part of the dog, the most nutrition part of the dog to be eating. The marks of illness were on their faces within a week of eating the first liver. Soon they marched through their unreal world and conditions made worth by the liver-induced disorientation of which they were unaware. The parched mouth, the dried out navel, nasal membranes, the stomach pains that bent them over to one side, all were put down to thirst and hunger. They didn't really think anything of it. They were never to know that the swelling of their spleens and livers 
disrupted their balance and that the stripping of skin, the loose shreds of flesh inside their cheeks and the inflamed cracks around their nose and mouth were due to the dog liver and not the wind and cold and general mal malnutrition. There was no way they could know. Their only concern with the dog meat centred on obtaining the maximal benefit and on how to make the mushy flesh more palatable and easy to chew. Mawson wrote one night, We rack our brains on the march trying to think what we can do with the dog flesh to make it more acceptable. So here we go. Uh, Ninus actually succumbs to the hypervitaminosis A and dies. Uh, he, he lashes out one night in the, in the tent in confusion and, and, and craziness. And Mawson holds him down in the morning. Uh, his brain must have bled out and, and he's dead. So now Mawson finds himself still over 100 miles away from safety um, and by himself. He's now by himself. And this is him walking one day. And this next... This next passage here is my favorite. Um, if you've ever had a blister, and you know how painful blisters are, then listen to this. And after this, you should never, ever complain about a blister again. Here we go, he's pulling his sled. He slipped and staggered, and in the jarring of his legs, he felt a new disturbing pain in his feet spreading discomfort through his ankles into his legs. Persisting with his target of 10 miles that day, he went down on all fours and started to crawl across the ice. So you can remember, he's gone out 320 miles, he's turned around, he's got about 100 miles left, so he's done, done about 500 odd miles now. You can imagine the feet probably getting a bit tender. He sat on the edge of his sled and took off his boots and the two pairs of socks. The sight of his feet were a hammer blow to his heart. The lumpy, awkward feeling came from underneath, where both of his souls had separated into casks of dead skin. The thick pads of his feet had come away, leaving a braided raw tissue. His soles and heels were stripped. An abundant watery fluid fills his socks, and it was that which had caused the squelching feeling in his socks. Can you imagine that? The bottom of your feet are peeling off. The, the thick casks of skin separated from your soles. Now, I actually found this awesome wee reenactment video of some of this, and I'm going to try and put a little bit of that on YouTube. And the scene that was, that was doing this, like if that's not enough to make you sick, reading that just watch this it's it's horrendous so if you ever get a blister again and complain about it you need to harden up a little bit because Mawson the bottom of his feet are falling off but listen how he deals with it all that could be done was to heavily smear the red inflamed exposed flesh with lanolin and luckily I had a good supply and then replace the separated soles and bind them into position with bandages. They were the softest things I had available to put next to the raw tissue. So he bandaged the bottom of his feet, which were separating, back 
on because that was the softest thing he had to put next to it. It's incredible. It's incredible. And now he's back on the trail walking again. Each step was a controlled movement to avoid too much pressure on his feet. Sometimes he walked on the outside edge of his boots, sometimes reaching onto his toes. In between, he dropped to his hands and knees to rest his feet. The hours in his evenings were given over mainly to attention to his body. He spent hours with the dressings on his body and bandaging his loose skin soles back into place. As he ate his meal, he became aware that he could no longer taste food and he had lost his sense of smell. So luckily he can't even taste the dog that he's eating now, but it doesn't sound good. He cooked half ration of pemmican and then hoping to build strength of his journey ahead, he added some of his dwindling stock of dog jelly with half a biscuit and then boiled up an old tea bag. That's breakfast for you. Or maybe that was dinner. Whatever it is, it doesn't sound good. Dog jelly. It's boiled down dog feet. They didn't have much. They boiled down the dog meat, bones into jelly. So these are just a few notes from him setting up camp each night and reassessing his body. And you can see the deterioration. His weak staggering brought him to a panting halt. By the time he cut the snow blocks, lashed the supports together and fought the wind to slip the cover over the frame, it was near midnight. Shivering, he heated his thin pemmican and noted, I am in a terrible mess. Everything is saturated with snow. In a few hours, it will all freeze solid. Imagine getting up in the morning and having to put all that frozen stuff on. He was shocked afresh at its condition. A poor desiccated skeleton of a frame from which the muscle tissue had vanished. Wide patches raw with the friction of the clothing and harness, inflamed in the groin, his black nails coming loose, his teeth shaking in their sockets, his jaw aching, and his hair, his beard was harvested by starvation. The hair was off his head in handfuls. I have lost so much hair that I rival my reindeer sleeping bag, which is now molting heavily. It is a race between us. Who shall be bald first? He was a mile and a half from the hut now. Can you imagine that? You've been out there for months and months. You've come a hundred miles by yourself, a couple of hundred miles with your companion after the incident at the crevasse happened. You've been eating dog. You've got festering sores over. The bottom of your feet are literally falling off, and now you're about a mile and a half from the hut. How's that going to feel? He pushed his goggles back and his eager eyes scanned the water so he can see the bay now, Commonwealth Bay. The ship, the ship that was going to take him home, was not in her usual anchorage, but far out on the horizon, beyond the mouth of Commonwealth Bay, was a black speck, a plume of dark smoke, a ship sailing westward, and there was only one ship to be expected in these waters. He was now marooned, alone, in this awful land. So he gets up to the bay, he's almost at the hut, the ship's been waiting there for him, it's decided it's got to go, it's steaming out, he's by himself. Well that's what he thinks anyway. He gets down a little bit further, closer to the hut, it's kind of on, he's kind of walking along this big uh, mountain, well not a mountain top, big plateau, and then there's big ice cliffs down to the water uh, where it's hutted. So he can't see the hut until he's right up on the top looking down on it. 
There was no sign of anyone, no smoke from the stovepipe above the white-coated roof. Then with a leaping pulse, he saw three figures. In a matter of seconds, he stripped off one glove and waved it with a tired arm above his head. It went unseen. He tried to call, but his voice was a croaking rasp, muttered by his dried membranes and the clutch of emotion of seeing human beings. Can you imagine that, seeing human beings again after all of this? Again he waved with his glove. Seconds passed. Then, as in a dream, he saw one of the figures straighten up and look towards the rising ice cap. The figures suddenly were galvanized in a rush of action, and soon the excited voices rolled into his ears. There was no more to do, nothing now he needed to undertake. He had reached civilization. Well, it's actually just a small hut on the edge of Antarctica, but imagine how that would have felt. He still got in a ship, sail across the Southern Ocean back to real civilization, but this, compared to what he has been in, amazing. The ship, where is the ship? Is she here, or did I really see her out there? He saw the answers in their face. Bob Barge put a kindly arm around his skinny shoulders, his eyes serious. She sailed about six hours ago. He missed it by six hours. <laughs> so he's back in the hut, and uh, they wildly tap away. This is actually the first expedition to ever have uh, communications down in Antarctica apparently. They took Morse code with them, they set up a couple of um, radio receivers and they're actually able to send Morse code back to Australia for the first ever time. And so they're tapping out this Morse code message to the ship. The ship has a receiver but no sender so they can receive messages, don't know if they got them or not. There was no luxury of sleep for Douglas Mawson that night. The feel of the bunk mattress was unreal under his body. The blankets were strange and disturbing and the excitement and gratitude of his escape. The thought of future living filled the hours. It was to be weeks before he could sleep again right through the night, and months before normality returned. Throughout the night hours, hope was strong and warm in Douglas Mawson. But when dawn came, hard snow blew down from the plateau, and wind began to fill the silent world. It was McLean who first saw the ship. He came rushing back into the hut, calling excitedly, I saw her, the ship has come back, she's pushing into the bay. The full blast of the gale came down to meet the aurora. By midday, it raged across the open water at a force above 80 miles an hour. It whipped the sea into angry waves. The head-on buffering defeated the thrust of the single four-bladed propeller, and the men aboard saw her going backwards, being blown into reverse through her own wake. Up and down, they were seeking a lee, all day, back and forth. Hour after hour, the ship bit against the wind, some 15 miles offshore, her furnaces gulping up the precious coal and roaring at full blast to maintain the vital head of steam that shielded all their lives. In such weather, there was no hope of taking a party off from the hut. The motorboat would not be able to live minutes. So they've got a wee motorboat that they run from the main ship that anchors out in the bay, back to the hut, picks people up, brings them back out. No way that's going anywhere. So Captain Davis, the man on the ship, he summoned his men from the main party base into the wardroom. These are all the guys that he's really picked up from the hut, taking them back. Time has run out. I'm going to have to go west. There's only about enough coal to get the ship over to pick up Wild and then get out back to Hobart. 
I'm doing this because I consider Wilde to be at the greatest danger. I am responsible for him and his men and for the safety of the ship and this crew. The party at the hut have shelter and stores for the winter and there is medical men on hand to tend to Dr. Mawson, whatever his needs might be. I will raise the additional funds and bring the ship south next spring to relieve them. That is all I can do. There's no other choice. Mawson felt entirely drained. His legs were more swollen than when he was in Aladdin's cave. His joints were more painful. His stomach was sore and tender, and he suffered sudden bowel disturbances. Still, he did not lie and rest. He followed the men in their work about the hut. Not to talk to them, but needing to be near them and feel the warmth of their companionship. He listened to them talk of the prospect of the ship returning in mid-March. So the ship's not coming back. He's going to have to stay all through winter in this hut in his condition. Slowly the Antarctic winter crept closer around the seven men. Each day grew shorter as the gales rose in strength. Mawson occupied his mind with plans for a new scientific program and to carefully rebuild his health and strength. It was to be a longer process than he knew. The march back from the black crevasse had come near to killing him. He realised this as the weeks of restless sleep went on and the pains continued to rack his body. So much so that when talking to newsmen the following year, he ventured a rare opinion about his condition and said, I know now the enforced isolation in the hut for a second winter in that land was a blessing in disguise. My state was so poor, I was so near death's door, I now believe if I had been in time to board the Aurora and sail immediately, I could not have survived the long, rough sea voyage home. Good point. So being trapped in the, in the hut another winter probably actually saved them. Through the endless gales and dark days, Mawson longed to hear the cry that would go up when in spring the ship came into sight and he would see again the long finger of smoke on the northern horizon. When that great day came in mid-December 1913, he was still shaky, very thin and hairless. On a day of pale sun, the Aurora left Commonwealth Bay for the last time, and Mawson sat on the after rail watching the receding plateau of ice. So Nick, what do you think? The accursed, this accursed land, what are your first thoughts on it? Pretty, pretty mind blown, really, isn't it? I mean, the the fact that this is a pretty, pretty impressive tale of uh, an explorer's quest um, that I had no idea about. Um, you know, that a lot of people, I guess, especially in New Zealand, maybe some of the Australians know more about it, like you said. Yeah, um, I'd be keen to know, like, how many Aussies out there knew about this guy, because I, I had no idea. And even if you look around online. Everyone sort of says that this guy got kind of hard done by. He was overshadowed by uh, one um, Scott's death because he sort of uh, died as this hero. And um, even though Armiston got to the pole first, Scott's death was seen to be like an honourable death and that they pulled their sleds, they didn't have dogs. And then Mawson just sort of got swept under the mat as well. It's kind of a bit rough. Yeah, yeah, that is that is rough. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's you can kind of liken it, I guess, to some of the the Edmund Hillary tales from New Zealand. Mm. Um, and I'd say there'd be a lot of kids these days that don't know who Sir Ed is and what he did. 
but also how much of an achievement that was for his time. Uh, you know, now you can go up Everest and there's a queue of people waiting to get to the top. You can pay all the money in the world and someone will pretty much carry you all the way, make you walk the last little bit and stake your, stake your claim. So I think it's a, it's a great perspective grabber, um, not only for, for what we're trying to do here with the Harden Up project, but also just for remembering that there was a time when it wasn't that easy to get to Antarctica. Um, you know, it took months of sailing um, and, and so forth. And then how we relate that to some of the, the more New Zealand-based, um, I guess, explorers. Yeah, big time. Now, um, with the Harden Up project, a big part of it is building this new normal, the new normal about your new normal level of perception in terms of how you compare things relatively. And I was talking with Nick before the podcast today, and I'm sensing as a, he's a little bit of a skeptic. He's still not sold on this. What was your thoughts around that, Nick? Um, I, I guess, and what I was saying to Matty is that I, the, the suffering's all relative. So now for someone to go to Antarctica, they're never going to have that experience unless they actually physically wanted to and they'd have to pay probably the privilege to be in that situation um, from a, a danger and a um, you know, health and safety, red tape, all those kind of things. So uh, it's, it's hard to compare, I guess, a relative story to something that can't happen. Um, and that's where I guess I was, I was talking to Matty around that. Can we compare our lives to 1908? Because we don't know what it's like to live in their time, but it, also in their time they didn't know any different as well. They didn't know of computers, iPhones, um, you know, mm-hmm. GPS units, um, warm puffer jackets and sleeping bags that were, you know, they rated. They didn't know about comfort. <laughs> exactly. They didn't know about comfort. Um, and so it's, it's, it's an interesting kind of concept to grapple with, um, this idea of, of relative, um, relative perceptions. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think, like, we, we can't, we can't go back and, and live there, uh, and probably none of us will ever experience something as a physically extreme as that. But what I think uh, you can do is build that new normal from learning from these experiences, and then when you start to quote-unquote suffer in your really soft way that we suffer these days, comparing it to that can make your new relative norm slightly different. So for an example, um, throughout the book, they, they are obviously in Antarctica, and it is literally the coldest in the windiest place on Earth. This bay that they were in, Commonwealth Bay, highest ever wind speeds recorded was there. So anything else that, that I ever experienced, unless I'm at Commonwealth Bay, Never going to be that windy. And as an example, I, during the Great Southern Brevet this year, uh, self-supported mountain bike event, I was up on top of the Pisa Range and up on top of the Old Man Range, and it was blowing an absolute gale. It was hands down the windiest experience I've ever had. So I've got this kind of scale of windiest experiences that I've ever had, and it sort of starts years ago when we did this ride through Thompson's Gorge, which is over here in central Otago, and we would come around the corner and sort of get blown across the road and blown off our bikes. We had to push our bikes a bunch, and that was like my my benchmark. Everything got compared to that. Well, 
this experience up on on the tops this day during the Great Southern Brevet completely blew that one completely to pieces. My bike was literally, I was holding onto it two hands and it was flapping in the air, like off both wheels off the ground. Unbelievably windy. And all I could think about during that time, apart from I wish this wind would stop blowing, was that how it doesn't even compare to how windy it was for Mawson and his crew. So they literally had the windiest conditions in the world, and they're trying to do their exploration, pull sleds. 200-mile-an-hour wind will blow a man off his feet. It'll throw you know heavy rocks out to sea. And here I am you know, going for this lovely bike ride, over top of these, you know, very spectacular mountains, and I'm starting to get all frustrated about this this wind speed. So for me, you know, I used a phrase, harden up, because for me that term has a lot of different things attached to it. And this story about Mawson and the, and the wind and that is is really something that I can relate to, because I've been in some strong winds, but nowhere near as strong as uh, as what they experienced. Another another example that that I was uh, thinking about and talking with Nick beforehand is this morning, oh, yesterday, I was, I was out in the wind because it was kind of windy here yesterday, chopping up some firewood, getting ready for winter. Uh, and this morning I woke up and my lips are all windburned. They're kind of red. They're, they're starting to get a little bit dry. <laughs> and I thought... I've got to find some lip balm because my lips are starting to get, you know, this tingly sensation on, on them. And I was just looking around for my lip balm and I couldn't find it anywhere. And I had to get out the door and I was just, ah, won't worry about it. And I took a, took a moment and I thought, how soft am I being right now? Because I'm getting all grumpy because I can't find my lip balm because my lips are a little bit tingly. When you read of Mawson, and he's got these big scabby sores around his nostrils and his lips are all blistered and the literally like the inside of his mouth is just peeling off and here I am trying to look for my lip balm and I just stopped looking for it I just stopped looking for my lip balm I don't even I just I don't even need it like it's embarrassing for me to think that I'm I'm looking for lip balm when I got this little tingle on my lips where this guy's his face was peeling off, he had so much, so much windburn, and here I am looking for my lip balm. And for the record, I haven't found it yet. I stopped looking for it, and I'm just in, I'm just savoring the windburn because it is absolutely nothing. I'm just building that mental resilience <laughs> with my windburnt lips. <laughs> what have to get you some some harden up chapstick. Some harden up chapstick. <laughs> It'd just be an empty tube. <laughs> It'd just be an empty tube. But that's the sort of thing in that nothing changed for me. Nothing changed. Physically, my lips are still tingling and they're still windburnt. The body's still doing its thing. Nothing changed physically. But mentally, my choice has completely changed. And the way I'm interpreting these uh, these signals from my body have changed as well, and and it completely changes your outlook on things as well. And it and as we go, this is this is what I want to build up this uh, this meaning behind the phrase "harden up." And there's going to be some stories that really you really connect with. There's going to be some that you're like, "That's not relevant at all. Uh, I took nothing from it." 
but I think if you can take a little bit from it, and, and the key thing is to know that you've got more to give. No matter what the situation is, you've got more. You know, his feet were falling off. Like the soles of his feet had separated from the bottom of his foot. Uh, and you can just imagine it. There's this pussy fluid flowing out of your feet as the, the bottom, you know, comes away. And so if you've got a blister, and I've, I've had some pretty gnarly blisters over my time. And now, ever since reading that, that I just changed the way I look at it. On the Great Southern Brevet, again, something pretty fresh in my mind still, kind of scarred from it. But, and I'll, I'll put a picture up on Facebook as well, and I'll put them up uh, on Instagram before it's again, but my feet were wet for like 20 hours each day in my bike shoes. Didn't take my shoes off, took them off at the end of the day, took them off for four hours while I slept, put them back on, another 20 hours in them. And by the end of the event, my feet were all wrinkly and these really deep, deep uh, folds of my skin, and they were pretty dang sore, and I had some blisters down there and all sorts going on. But again, in the back of my mind, I was just like, you are soft. Honestly, suck it up because at least your foot's not <laughs> – at least your sole of your foot is still connected to your foot with uh, nice connective tissue and it's, you're not having to bandage your foot back together every morning because it's falling to pieces. And again, it, it helped me recalibrate what my normal was. And I'm, I've pretty much got all the feeling back in my toes now, but just that ability to think, you know, other people have gone through much worse in regard to their feet or regard to the ellipse situation, although this is pretty tingly. And if they've gone through it, why can't you? Like, you you have the same physical material as that person. You know, you're a human being. Your DNA is, the majority of your DNA is exactly the same. The only thing that's different is the mindset between those two people, and between me and Mawson, for example. Would I be able to... Uh, bandaged my feet back together when they were falling to pieces. Oh, I really don't know if I could. But knowing that he's done it and that he got through, you know, he was he was out there for over 600 miles of trekking all up over, you know, multiple months, which is pretty extreme. So if he can do it, then why can't I do it? Or well, I can't do it because I'm soft and I need to harden up. That's the only reason. The only reason, Nick, you're looking at me all sceptical. No, no, I'm not sceptical. I'm just just concerned about your lips. Um, you, you mentioned it multiple times. That they're tingly, man. Yeah. But it doesn't even bother me because they're not big, scary sores. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to throw the lip balm out, mate. I'm I'm done with it. <laughs> yeah. That's right. I'm, I I fall fall into a category of using. More than I probably should as well. From a Mate, you know, be outside for a bike ride in the wind, all my lips. Um, exactly. Next time your lips are windburnt and you're reaching for that chapstick, just take a moment and just think, well, this isn't that bad. I could experience a lot worse than this. I know I could take a lot worse because other people have. I don't even think Mawson probably had lip balm. 
Lip balm probably hasn't been around that long, has it? He had lanolin. I was going to say, he yeah. Had lanolin. And he put lanolin everywhere. Yeah. And lanolin's not that smooth. <laughs> it's not that tasty, and I wouldn't want to be smearing it around everywhere. But yeah. uh, no. it's pretty hardcore. It is. Yeah, I've got, I've got no more words for that. Me neither, mate. There are no words. Let me know what you think of the Mawson story. Um, and I'll post a link. I don't even know if you can find that book anywhere. Like I say, the library was getting rid of it because no one checked it out in the last three years. But I'm sure you can find it around somewhere. And there's some pretty cool YouTube videos uh, talking around it as well, all Australian because they're the only ones that seem to care about the poor guy. But um, I think the key thing to, to think about with the Harden Up project and from the story is that is when you're at your limit, you know, just dig deeper, harden up a little bit, and get on with it because you always have more to give. And it's not just, we're not just talking physically because it's easy to apply it to the physical, you know, and that's where everyone jumps to first, which is great because it really can help your physical performance, whether it be in a race or in training, whatever it might be, but also in life as well. And I think this is where uh, it can have an even bigger impact because. In life, important things kind of tend to happen as well, potentially more important than in training and in racing. So I like to think of as, you know, try and harden up and, and make that phone call that you've been putting off. Harden up and stand up for what's right when it's not always easy to do that. Harden up and follow your dreams. Harden up and say you're sorry, which can often be really hard to do. Harden up and hold your tongue. Do you need to actually say what you're about to say in this given situation? And often that can be really hard to do as well because you don't want to let your ego get in the way. You want to say what you want to say and you want to get it all out there. But sometimes, sometimes it's better to harden up and hold your tongue. Harden up and offer a helping hand. Help someone else. Or harden up and ask for help yourself if you need it. Hardening up's not all about going at it alone. It's not all about uh, being a man or being aggressive or whatever it might be. Hardening up is more about making you better and whatever you're doing, you've got more to give. So get on with it and give some more. Speaking of giving more, we've got a few giveaways going on for the Harden Up project. Carrying on from last week, Send us in your hardest ever training session, hardest ever racing experience, whatever it might be, hardest ever adventure, and I'm going to send you out some free stickers. I've got some fresh ones coming, so hopefully I've got enough to give to everyone. But these stickers, I think they're awesome. I've cut up a bunch. I've got one right here on my computer, so when I'm working, boom, harden up. Whatever work I'm doing, suck it up and get on with it. I've also got one stuck on my handlebars of my bike. I've trimmed it up so it fits on there nicely, fits perfectly as I'm riding along. In my intervals yesterday, starting to suffer a little bit. Come on, harden up. Just pushed a little bit, a little bit harder. Instantly improved my performance. So if you've got, if you want some stickers, send us in your harden up story. If, as long as you're happy to have it posted on Facebook or Instagram, uh, we're going to read some of these out. 
And what we're going to do is we're going to choose the best story and we've got a bit of a prize pack coming together that includes some EPC clothing, uh, either a cycling top, a triathlon top or a running singlet. Sweet Cheeks have jumped on board and they're putting out uh, uh, a pack of their lotions which doesn't really go with the harden up message, but when you've been going so hard that you you need to take care of your body afterwards, then Sweet Cheeks is there to help. The second giveaway is over on Facebook and only over on Facebook. So get on over to Facebook and there's a, there's a post over there about giving away some free T-shirts, free harden up T-shirts, awesome T-shirts. We're gonna give away two of these. All you have to do to enter is tag a mate who needs a hard enough t-shirt to remind them of what to do when the going gets tough. And if we choose you, completely random draw, both of you will win a t-shirt. So just go over there and tag a mate. All of the links for everything we talked about on today's episode will be over at exponentialperformancecoaching.com slash 53. Nick. Anything else from your end? Hmm, no, I think I think you've wrapped up everything fairly nicely. Uh, it's that the the hardened up message is, is something that's been playing in my mind since since you brought it up last week, um, and it's uh, it's amazing what the the mantra of of that little word can do. Yeah, so encourage everyone to to adapt it in whatever situation it might be, with from work to training uh, to to life. Um, and apply it how you see fit. Definitely, and that's the whole thing is that it's different for everybody. The words are the same, but the meaning's different. So what we need to do is develop your specific meaning, and we're going to share some stories, and that's how I've done it for me, uh, but not necessarily it's going to be the way it happens for you. Nick's got some awesome stories coming up as well that he's going to share that no doubt will reinforce the Harden Up story from his end, and I've got some more coming at my end. For the future, to make sure you don't miss out on anything that we've got coming out, make sure you head over and subscribe. Whatever platform you're listening on, subscribe to the podcast, or head over to YouTube. We've got a lot of bunch of other videos and the video version of this podcast over there. We'll come over and find us over at the Exponential Performance Coaching Facebook page. Or come on over to Instagram to continue the conversation over there and see what Nick and I have been up to. I am at Matty EPC over on Instagram and Nick is at it's underscore. (laughs) 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 It's underscore uh underscore Nick's underscore life. Until next time, get out there. Harden up and train smarter. We'll talk to you next week.